This is Phil Layton with Pi Energy. Today we have on the show Charles Bayless, a retired utility executive and lecturer on energy policy, climate change, as well as a former provost of West Virginia Institute of Technology and a technical advisor to Pi Energy. I think you'll find this an interesting show. Take a listen. Charlie, thank you for joining us. We have today Mr. Charles Bayless. He's served as the president and CEO of several utilities, including Illinova Corp, Unisource Energy. He served on the board of Dynergy, Edison Electric Institute, and EPR. He was the president and provost of West Virginia University Institute of Technology. He holds an MSWE in power engineering, a JD, and an MBA. That's quite a background. So yeah, thank my you wife for... made me go to work, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so you've had a lot of experience. And then, but you have, during all of this, you have uh, moved to talking and communicating about climate change. How did you get there? Well, I suppose being an engineer and, and loving physics, I mean, the physics really is everything you need to know about climate change you can learn in a freshman physics class. And uh, once you realize that we're putting the extra heat equivalent of about three or four World War II nuclear weapons into our atmosphere every second, that's the extra energy we're adding. Wow. You can tend to get pretty, uh, <laughs> pretty wound up in it. Yeah. So that's, uh, and that's a lot of energy. So, you know, and it's, it's really physics is all about conservation of energy. You just do the simple math of energy in, energy out. Some of it gets reflected, some of it gets absorbed, right. and you just go through the 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 math, and it, that's I think the same for me. That's the problem is that uh, it's not balancing out that we're dumping any more heat. We're, yeah. we're starting. I always to ask people <clears throat> that don't believe it, why do you think the moon is ten below and the Earth is fifty nine point something? Yeah. And the answer was first postulated in eighteen twenty four by Joseph Fourier. Uh -huh. who said that the Earth's atmosphere traps heat. And it wasn't until 1897, okay, it's 124 years ago, that Savante Arenas, who won the Nobel Prize, worked out the math because he had the Stefan-Boltzmann equation where Fourier didn't. Mm. And it's just, I mean, it's so trivial, the math. Now, look, weather, you know, people ask me if we can predict what's going to happen. I say, no, we can't predict the weather two weeks out because it's a chaotic mathematical system. But that doesn't mean there's not gonna be weather. So we can't predict exactly what's gonna happen with climate change, but when we're adding, The Economist had an article that says the amount of energy that we've already added is greater than our remaining, the energy in our remaining fossil fuel reserves. So it's wow. a pretty big amount of energy. And, it's, and we're far behind. I mean, if we stop now, we'd still go up another half a degree because we're just, we haven't caught up with the atmosphere right. yet. It's all stored in some different places, in the ocean or... Uh, yeah, well, the oceans, you know, climate, one of the real problems is that the oceans and ice are taking the bulk of it. If you look at ice, it obviously, if you remember back from high school now, 80 <laughs> calories per gram, water is one calorie per gram, and air is about 0 0.2, 0 0.23, something, I think. 
And so every time that we melt a gram of ice, that's 80 calories. Yeah. And we're melting tons of ice. Greenland's losing about 400 billion tons a year. Well, think how much heat that is. When that ice is gone, that heat's going to come into the air. Right. But it warm 80 times as much uh, water and about, a, you know, 300 times as much air. But right now, the oceans and the ice are taking up way over 90% of the incoming heat. But those are buffering, but they won't last forever. Yeah. Yeah, and that's the thing. That's you look at it in the Arctic. There's huge swaths of it that's gone. Yeah, yeah, and, and then yeah, yeah, and then we that's, have the uh, the the permafrost is melting too. So we're now oh yeah, and that's the methane is you know the problem in the Arctic. It's called Arctic amplification. Yeah, when you get light bouncing off of snow, it comes back as visible light and goes out because there's a hole in the atmosphere that lets visible light in. But if it hits ground, if it hits earth, if it hits water, and it is re-radiated under the Stefan-Boltzmann equation, it's radiated as infrared. And infrared, there's a block, it can't get out. And so every square foot of Arctic we lose amplifies climate change because the next light ray that comes in doesn't hit ice, it hits dirt yeah. or, or water and is absorbed. Yeah. And then then we're really and then a lot of times as the ground heats up, we're releasing methane, which is even worse than CO2. Oh, yeah. Yeah. The methane is really efficient as a greenhouse gas. That's what we'll say, but it is. But as we lose the permafrost, you know, methane comes about because of anaerobic decomposition. So you had these peat bogs and things that now are frozen. If we ever get that, the, the so-called methane burp could absolutely put us under. Yeah. So how do you, how do you, what, so you've been going around and you've been giving talks and not all, and, and, and you have a method for doing this and how do you, uh, like West Virginia, so how do you present that to some groups that are maybe not as, uh, are willing to listen? My grandfather was a coal miner and yeah. I know many, many, I grew up there. I mean, I, and when I was at the, I was president of one of the three regional campuses of WVE. We were right across the street, I mean, in the river from a big mine. And a lot of my friends are miners. And I actually gave the talk once to the executive committee of the West Virginia Coal Association. I said, look, guys, I just want to tell you what you're up against. I know you don't believe it. That's fine. But I want to tell you how I see the science. And afterwards, they came up and, and many of them said, look, Charlie, we can understand this, but this is our livelihood. This is all I know. We do this, we're out of work. <clears throat> and one of the things that makes it so hard is the economics of externalities. Uh -huh. If you look in, I'll pick where another city I used to live, Tucson. And let's assume that Tucson says, we're gonna go 100% carbon free. Even our backyard grills, we're gonna skip charcoal and we're gonna have sunlight and mirrors and do backyard grills and all their vehicles, everything is electric. And it's, no, it's totally renewables and batteries. <clears throat> And let's say that the cost of energy there is seven cents a kilowatt hour. It's a little higher, but I need to use seven so that I can multiply easily. <laughs> seven cents a kilowatt hour. And let's say that I don't think it would, but let's say that it doubled it to 14 at all that extra cost because you're replacing a lot of old units with new units and they're always more costly than the old depreciated units. Let's say it added seven cents. Yeah. And the Tucson people are feeling pretty smug there. They think, well, this is great. How much benefit do we get? 
Well, this is what's called a public good in economics. It's non-rival. In other words, anybody can use it and it's non-excludable. You can't keep people from using it. So the benefit is shared by 7 billion people. So each Tucson resident for their seven cents gets a billionth of a cent. Yeah. And that's what makes it so hard. You know, the coal miners, they they understand, most of them, the benefits to society. But to them, it's a $60,000 a year job with no hope of finding other work because that's all they're qualified. So they're not going to give up. They're not going to make the sacrifice of $60,000 for their billionth of a cent. And uh, that's what makes it so hard is the, the economics of externalities. So in reality, that would be to convince them, you probably have to provide an alternative. You would. To, yeah. You would. And, uh, you know, these people, you know, they, they went from being very proud and saying, you know, we powered America's growth. And they did mm -hmm. in the 50s and 60s to now they basically they feel they're being thrown out with the trash. Yeah. And that people won't listen to them and people don't care about them. And that makes people angry. And so they're, they're still fighting to preserve coal because they lose their jobs. They lose everything if they don't. Right. That's an interesting perspective. You know, really, it's more than just the math of uh, the science. Yeah. But the effect, the societal effect on each individual person that is affected by it, by it and, yeah. and maybe how they uh, their pride too. So yeah. everybody filters their realities through different perceptions, different views, and they're the different reality they're living. And uh, <clears throat> if that's the reality you're living, it's pretty easy to rationalize. And, and, and plus that, you know, the economics of externalities, mm -hmm. they say, if we shut this mine down, it will make zero difference. Yeah. And countries say that, you know, if you look right now and you took the two largest coal utilities in the U.S., I don't know who they are, Southern, Duke, AEP, I don't know exactly who's the largest. But if you took and shut down the top three, it may set climate change back by a couple months. Yeah. So you need a worldwide effort. You know, so people can say, look, it won't make any difference what I do. I can be the very purest person like Tucson. And we can do the very best in the world, but unless everybody else does it. And so people become what are in economics called free riders. And they say, okay, if I do it and nobody else does, I've wasted my money. But if I don't do it and everybody else does, then gosh, I get the ride. Yeah. And so I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to spend my money to do this. And the problem there too is that you then have other countries that are where we were 100 years ago. And they're saying, is economic growth more important than our small benefit from climate change? No, we have to have economic growth for our citizens. Right. And so China's actually doing a much better job now. They're really doing good. India is just burning coal left and right and continuing. Yeah. And there's a number of other countries. I mean, you've got countries ranging all the way from countries like Denmark and Germany and, and you know, that are really going head over heels into renewables, Canada. Ontario did. I used to be on the board of the Ontario Power Authority, and we went heavily into renewables. And then you've got countries that are just saying economic growth is far more important. We would rather starve with climate change. We would rather not starve and have climate change than the other way around. Yeah. So it kind of points to you need some type of global solution that has an economic benefit. It's saying, okay, there's a new technology, kind of like the internet brought new economic opportunities. Right. Um, 
And I, I think that's the interesting thing is we can't keep going with slow, you know, just a few places benefit from the production of some renewable energy. If, if everybody says, hey, we can make money off it, we can grow from it, then they're more likely to embrace it. If, uh, Absolutely. Westford, yeah. yeah so, I've been arguing for, you. literally, I can remember uh, with uh, Vice President Gore mm -hmm. um, saying, and Katie McGinty, if you know Katie, she was his, but yeah. saying that this is a huge economic opportunity for the United States. If we go head over and head into heels, I mean, into renewables, we can sell billions of dollars of things abroad. We can be the go-to country for buying windmills and windmill blades and turbines and solar panels and everything else. And we've lost the march on that. Yeah, I think that's a huge opportunity. And, uh, note that you are on our board and uh, advisory board, I should say. Right. You're part of our team and uh, kind of helping us. But that is really what our focus is, is is I think with what it, there's technology and then there's the market it addresses and how, uh, what type of technology we bring, we really need to think about how does it fit in the market? Can it enable a much larger market and economic, economic opportunities? So, you know, one of the problems now with renewables is their intermittency, you know, sun doesn't shine at night. And we can fix that with batteries, but it becomes very expensive if you have to fix three or four days of it. You yeah. know, if it's just one night, if you had a utility, a very small utility, had 100 megawatt load constantly during the day and 50 at night, well, everybody knows you'd have 150 megawatts of generation and 100 to run the load and 50, and then you'd need 50 of batteries for yeah. night. But what happens if it doesn't shine for another day yeah. well then you need another 150 megawatts of generation for every day that the sun isn't going to shine so to get reliability at some point it becomes cheaper to put in gas turbines but one of the beauties of the pi energy product is it will operate in much lower light and different light so you'll get more time out of it which is a huge in huge huge factor in the economics of renewables yeah, and I think the other thing we're what we're trying to do, of course, is put them on cars where they and, and vehicles where they already have a battery. That, right. You know, so you bypass the grid. Right. But but that's the interesting thing. The grid is still we need the grid, and we need to you know it's oh, yeah. it's kind of a backup. And there's some interesting things with uh, vehicle to grid where they're you know have a bus or something with this big battery. But again, we're still have that issue like you're talking about it's the you're out you know if the the sun's not shining for a week um right. and and what about the if you more integrate there actually go further and have these dc power lines where you can pull power uh, uh wind power from say the uh, midwest to share yeah. with other regions yeah that that's that's a excellent idea i wrote an article on that and <laughs> look People say that's nuts, but we've been doing it for years. We constructed the American Electric Power 765,000 volt system to bring coal power from West Virginia and Kentucky to Chicago. We constructed most of the PJM interconnections to bring coal from West Virginia and Western Pennsylvania into New Jersey. Um, we constructed huge power lines coming down from Washington and Oregon into LA 
to bring down cheap hydro power. We have for years been doing that. So the people that run around saying that's silly, no, that's what we've been doing for years. When I was the CEO of PS New Hampshire, we used to regularly buy power from Florida Power and Light and Southern Company in Atlanta, and we'd sell it to them. And the in the winter, TEP Tucson Electric Power was sitting there wondering why we were in business because there was no load. We'd sell power to British Columbia and Alberta, huh. and we'd buy it in the summer. So we've been doing this for years. So what transmission does then, it allows you to locate renewables in places with higher capacity factors and more intensity. You can put all sorts of renewables in the Southwest in, in solar in Arizona, New Mexico, California, and Nevada and ship that power. And people think, well, that's a long way. Well, you know, once there's four big plants in, in the three big plants in the four corners area between Colorado, Arizona, New Mexico, and Utah. Four Corners, Navajo, San Juan, they're closing. And so suddenly you've got a transmission path from Four Corners clear throughout the Southwest, clear over to LA. SoCal Ed used to own part of one of those plants. And so you've got 500 kV lines running all over the Southwest. You've got other lines going east. And there's not, as, there's not as many of them, but they go clear up into Denver. So suddenly you've got a path to already get it to Denver to put solar in the Southwest. Then you got to have an AC-DC tie to go from west to east, mm -hmm. but we can do that. And that's no different than building the 765 line that AEP built to get energy to Chicago. So if we can do the grid and put in these long-distance DC lines, we can then put renewables where they have a much higher capacity factor and much more sun or wind intensity. Yeah. And then if you have these power outages, you know, we're all of a sudden, like in Texas, if they were connected, they may have been able to bring in power, right? Uh, oh, yeah. From, so. Texas, I, I joke, has the distinction. In, in if you look at interconnections, Texas is the smallest state in the nation, smaller than Rhode Island, except for Alaska and Hawaii, which have no interconnections. Uh -huh. Okay? So it has the distinction of being the only nation state in the nation that is larger than Alaska, but smaller than Rhode Island. So the Texans don't like that. Yeah. But yeah, they would never have had that blackout. That blackout was simply because Texas, for some strange reason, thought they could rely on an energy market to provide capacity. An energy market, we have energy markets all over the place, but we still have commissions that say you've got to construct this much capacity. We have NERC rules. See, Texas was not connected because they didn't want to follow federal rules. And so gas plants, they didn't winterize. If they couldn't run, they couldn't run because it would, to run would cost them an extra five, six hundred million or something if you really wanted a big gas unit right. and to winterize it and do everything. And so they just said, well, it's too cold and we can't get gas. We'll just shut down. Well, they did have to shut down. The gas wells weren't winterized. You cannot construct an electric system that has the required one day and 10 year reliability on it on a gas system that doesn't. Mm -hmm. So in, in the in the areas, let's just pick California, you know, the WEC and the commission say, okay, this is how much capacity we need. And PJM, look at the reliability pricing model. They have a capacity market. They look and say, we need this much and go out in the market and get it to ensure they have adequate capacity. And there's penalties if you don't run. Texas didn't have that. And so half their plants just said, oh, well, no, we can't get gas, we'll shut down. Well, that's fine, except if everybody shuts down. So 
they totally were relying on an energy market and they had no capacity market and it, it cost them. It was a market failure. It wasn't that, an engineering failure. Yeah, that's the interesting thing. There's, you know, the there's individual markets where, you know, there's a philosophy of just markets will drive it, but then there's also society. I mean, there's certain things like fire departments, you, you have to pay to have them available. Yep. And there's a benefit to it from society. And that's, and I think it's kind of similar here. You're paying for that being available sure. and the interconnection, you know, you can share firefighters and here we can be sharing electricity <clears throat> between states. It goes back to the whole climate change kind of, you have to yep. kind of start taking higher. Markets you know, cannot handle externalities. Yeah. And to an energy market capacity as an externality, you know, you look, I forget how many megawatts California can bring in, but it's up in the tens of thousands. Had that happened in California, the lights may have flickered. Mm -hmm. But, you know, the whole Western interconnection is like 450,000 megawatts. And, yeah, the frequency would have dipped, and but they could have kept it up. Because yeah. there's also reserves, and as soon as the frequency started down, uh, you would have seen reserves coming on that weren't on. Yeah. But in Texas, there weren't any. You know, in the interim, we can we can move forward to renewable energy. I mean, there's probably until we solve that, uh, you know, the long term problem, we'd still need some type of backup and there'll be a need for these gas turbine backup right. plants. But we don't have to use them as much. You pay for no. that backup and you're not using as much but at least that allows you to have that backup capacity while we're moving, we're having new solutions come out. So it's, yep. yeah. Yeah, we've got to do the system studies, the stability studies. You know, we have to, we have in the industry, what we call the N minus one criteria. It says, it says if your grid can run with N number of units, you've got to be able to run with N minus one. Any unit, the failure of any unit cannot take the grid down. Yeah. And so, you know, you, you look at that and we've got to have backup. Uh, if, if, you know, but right now you look at Arizona and if Palo Verde, which is way over a thousand megawatts a unit goes down, the lights hardly blink. Why? Because you have 400,000 megawatts of reserves in the Western interconnection. Yeah. Uh, in Texas, that would have been a problem. Well, I, this has been uh, fantastic. I really enjoy talking with you about the science and the, the engineering of this, because this is actually a problem that, uh, you know, as society, we can move forward. And I think there's an opportunity, uh, which hopefully we will grab onto for um, not only the United States, but the world. And I appreciate you giving a flavor for some of the issues and challenges and some potential solutions for it. So. Um, thank you again for joining us on the show and I uh, enjoyed it and okay thank you Phil we had on the show today Charles Bayless we talked about climate science and some solutions if you have any questions please see us at www.pienergy.com thank you for listening <laughs>